Welcome to the Wallaway. We have a very special episode here today with a, sm- a special friend, Kuferi Kamara, founder and principal strategist consultant of Leap72. Leap72 is a strategic innovation consultancy. Kamara is a futurist who works with startups and emerging technologies that push the boundaries of capability. He is also a co-founder and board member of Academy M, a 501c3 nonprofit specializing in removing intergenerational boundaries for Generation Y and Z through mentorship and career development. Can we call you Q? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Q, how you doing, man? Doing good, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Let's get straight to it because I know time is limited, but what is Academy M? Academy M seems like this special organization that has a very special mission. Can you sum it up for me real quickly? What does Academy M do and stand for? Uh, Very simple. Academy M is a mentoring nonprofit for millennials for life development and career development. Um, Our our core focus is in developing mentors who understand how to communicate and how to lead and develop uh, millennials from the millennial generation known as Generation Y and Z. Just let me ask you like a very direct question. Why are millennials very misunderstood, if not the most misunderstood generation? Uh, I, I believe that they're the most under, uh, misunderstood generation because you, you have a gigantic paradigm shift that has occurred in this particular generation that's never happened before in human history. So you have to look at history in the last three generations, right? So you have Generation X, you got the baby boomers, and then before the baby boomers, you have a segment that was called the traditionalists, which is part of the, the greatest generation ever that fought World War One and World War Two. So those generations, their experiences were somewhat similar in terms of culture, in terms of uh you know, education, in terms of social political factors, the conditions were very similar. When you get to 1980s, starting 1980s, going into the 90s and 2000s, the conditions are no longer similar because now you start integrating the Internet, you start integrating technology, and that changes the ballgame because for the first time in human history, the entire world becomes smaller because you have this thing called the Internet that is connecting everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, like, you know, I'm, I'm 38, and I was born at the beginning of the 80s. So, you know, in some cases, depending on which research you, you read, you know, I'll be considered uh, a millennial at the tail end of the spectrum. But most people who consider millennials millennials, they're usually looking at those people who are born, like, in the 90s um, or the late 80s. Um, for the most part. And what you find is when you get to the 90s, okay, well, you have what, what things launched in the 90s. You got you got Yahoo, you got Google. Most of the big internet companies like Google and Amazon, they were all launched in the 90s. They all started changing the way that we look at things. And the younger generations were the ones who flocked to them first. Whereas the older generations, they adopted to those things later on. But their, their experiences were already in uh, in stone because they were already developed as adults. But when you have kids who are young age or they're teenagers and they're adopting this technology, it's going to change the way they interact with their environment and everything else. It even changed, like for here for us here in the United States, it changed how we interacted with each other culturally because before the Internet, and before streaming and smartphones and social media and all these other things, you didn't know what was going on even in the next town next to your town. Right. You understand? Because everything happened in these closed, you know, connected communities. Now, even if you lived in a large city like Houston, for instance, right, um, you didn't know what was happening in New York if you lived in Houston. Right. You didn't know what was happening even in San Antonio if you lived in Houston. But thanks to the Internet, and also other factors, like even popular culture music, like you look at hip-hop music now is, is musically in the music industry, hip-hop music is 
the number one genre. Whereas if you go back 20 years, the number one genre was country music mm. and, and, and pop music and rock music. Right, those were the number one genre. Hip hop was considered an aberration. It was supposed to be a fad. But hip hop, because it, it's a unique art form that can literally absorb any kind of music into its its um its particular uh, sound, it it became kind of like a it's its own version of CNN for a lot of young people of different races and ethnicities. And so now, all of a sudden, even if you didn't have the internet, you can listen to a hip-hop song from any given rapper, and you can find out what was going on in New York. You can find out what was going on in California. So all these things, uh, we at Academy M, we call these things uh, Marco, like they're like macro factors. They're like large factors, right? Mm-hmm. Ma- macro factors. And these things all started happening at the same time. So you had technology, you had different cultural influences in music, sound, and taste. You had different immig- immigration laws because you know I'm I'm a first generation of uh, of uh, immigrant family because you know my father immigrated from Jamaica. So you had a lot of different things that kind of converged at the same time, and this created a whole different individual. And that's why when you look at the millennial demographics. Not just here in the United States, if you look at the millennial demographics across the world, the same phenomenon you see is happening. There's a gigantic intergenerational, intergenerational disconnect between millennials, between baby boomers, and uh, between generation Xers because of these, these large factors that just kind of converged upon one another. They literally created a gigantic world paradigm shift. And that's why we believe. The millennial, mis- the millennial generation is, is misunderstood in, that, in those terms because if you haven't shared the experiences of the millennial generation at the same time they encountered those experiences, okay, you may get on Facebook, but if you get on Facebook at 50 or 40, you don't understand Facebook the way, mm-hmm. like, for instance, I understand Facebook. I was on Facebook when Facebook first launched. Right. But even I didn't understand Facebook the way one of my younger cousins, who's in their teenage years, understand Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram, because when all these social media things came out, I was still an adult, too. Right. So, you know, Facebook came out when I was in my, my mid-20s. Um, but for these kids who Facebook came out and they're like 13, 14, or like I have a 14-year-old daughter, um, uh, like Snapchat and Instagram, and like all these things are out now. And the way they're experiencing it and using this technology is totally different than how I, I experienced it ten or fifteen years ago. <laughs> let's 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 hone in on a few things that you just said because with all these descriptions that you gave, one thing becomes very evident that there's like a bombardment, right? There's just so many things that the millennials had to adapt to or that they had to integrate as part of their natural ecosystem, right? Um, the reason I even bring up this conversation is about a month ago. I was with some older Gen X and younger baby boomers, and they were just really having a field day with uh, millennials. And I don't think they're even familiar with that term millennials, but they were casually referring to them as the youth. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the stereotypical stereotypes, right? They're lazy. They don't want to strive for anything. And I tried explaining to them very casually that, you know, the challenges we have today are numerous and so unique in nature that, it's it's almost even uh, difficult to become accustomed to. And they were just nonchalantly dismissing all of those as excuses and saying that we don't want to work hard. Their generation, they had to come here. They had to work hard. But the way I look at it um, from a purely economic standpoint, and maybe you can uh, uh, you know further enhance this, is the people who came here, first generation, or people who immigrated here uh, in the 60s and 70s and maybe even into the 80s, there were more opportunities for them to survive and thrive. Do you agree with that? Has your research um, for Academy M shown that to be true? Uh, I can say I, I, I partially agree with it, only because I wouldn't say that it was easier for them or there was more opportunities. I would say that the barrier to entry was lower. Mm. And what I mean by that is if 
you're a millennial today. Let's say, okay, you, the, the typical path that we tell everybody who's a young person, okay, you graduate high school, go on to college, you get your degree, you come out, and you go into a career, right? This is a typical path we tell everybody that you need to go uh, follow if you want to be successful in America. Well, if we look at that path today, right, uh, people, like if you look at a Generation X or a Baby Boomer, they weren't saddled with $1.5 trillion of student debt. Right. Because you didn't have degree inflation, right? Because that's what you're facing now. Like the degree has pretty much, the cost of the degree has been inflated, but the value of the degree has, uh, the college degree has been deflated. Right. So now you can have somebody like my father. He immigrated from Jamaica over here in the late 70s. And he had me in the early 80s. And he had to go back to school because they didn't recognize his degree from Jamaica. So he had to go back to school to get his degree in accounting, right? Mm. Now, when he went back to school to get his degree in accounting, literally the cost of that degree was probably under $20,000, right? And mm. I'm talking about not just the um, him going for the four-year. I'm talking about even the uh, accessory years that he needed to get his uh, CPA and all that other stuff is probably didn't top out no more than $25,000. The average cost for just a, a four-year degree at a, a, a legitimate, reputable institution now is averaging around thirty-five to $40,000, right, just for a, a four-year degree. Now, if you go to an Ivy League school, that goes up to 100000 plus, right? Mm. So, and if you go to one of these online colleges uh, where they want you to be able to graduate within, like, kind of like a three-year period, now that goes up to sixty or 70000 plus. Mm. And that's before you tack on interest or whatever. Those are just the general costs, mm-hmm. right? So... My father literally got two degrees for twenty five thousand. Just for me to get one, I might have to spend almost fifty thousand. Yeah, yeah. And with right, no, yep. Go ahead. I was gonna say, and with no promise or with low promise of getting the job you thought you would have gotten gotten fifteen twenty years ago. Yeah, and but but I, I will I will agree with the point from the older generation. There's more job opportunities as far as different kinds of jobs than there were in the 80s or the 90s now. But the problem is, is that once again, there's a there's a misalignment of the equation because when my father went into the job market in the 80s to get his jobs in accounting, right, uh-huh. the in- inflation rate that he had to deal with was different. So the cost of goods and the cost of living was different. Like, even when, like, I've been living here in Houston for, because um, I'm here in Houston, Texas. I've been living here in Houston. I'm not from Texas originally. Grew up in Detroit, Michigan originally. But um, when I moved here in 2000, my first apartment, which was in a decent area, right, 635 square feet cost me $385 a month, and wow. cable and water was included. <laughs> right? And this is in 2000. This is the summer of 2000. This is June of 2000, my brother. Wow. Right? To now, if I want to get that same apartment, same complex even, <laughs> I go to the <laughs> same complex today, right? To get the same square footage, it costs me $700. Mm. Right? And that's just in the time I've been here in Houston within the last 20 years. So if you're, you know, one of the uncles or the grandpas, from the older generation, and you're in your 50s, because I'm only 38, so if you're in your 50s, you're, you're thinking about 90s, you're dealing with 90s prices. Man, did you know a regular apartment in California uh, was going for, like, between 150 to $200 a month in California during the early 90s? Had, had no idea. A regular apartment now in California, Right. It's going to cost you between three, four thousand dollars a month. Okay, hmm. so when my father went in to the market 
he was making out the gates at least, you know, thirty five to forty thousand at a minimum. But that money it stretched more because it was worth more. So what you have here is the problem with the millennials isn't that it's not the job availability. It's the it's the inflation of the degree, it costs more. And then the month the the job market hasn't kept pace with the wages. Mm. So the same job, the same accounting job that my father gets out of college is still starting people off at the same rate. So you should be, if if the degree has gone up 50%, the cost of the degree has gone up, and it's gone up more than that. It's actually increased, the cost of the degree has actually increased across the board at least over 100%, according to most estimates right, in the last 25 years. Mm. But let's just say we'll take the low number of 50%. So if the cost of the degree has increased 50%, right, and you have annual inflation in this country, uh, which is healthy for healthy economies around 2.5%, then that means the wages have to keep pace. Right. Right? So that means that in order to live like how my father was living in the 80s, I have to pretty much make over 80000 to to $100,000 coming out of college. Mm. But that's not happening. The average salary for a millennial with a four-year degree is uh, in the low 30s. So he's, he's making anywhere from 30000 to 35000 coming out of school with a four-year degree. That's the, those are the numbers from Q and everywhere else. Right. Mm. So I'm coming out literally impoverished. <laughs> what can you do on a $35,000 annual salary and you have student debt, you got to buy a car. So now you're going to have loans on the car and then you have to be able to afford to live in, in the average cost of just a basic apartment, not just here in Houston, but really averaging across the South and even the Midwest where you are. You're looking at at least close to a thousand dollars a month just for a one bedroom. Oh yeah. So that's twelve thousand in a year. It's already gone. No, no. Do, do, okay, so now you brought up good. You brought up the tuition. You brought up the rent. I was reading the other day that the millennial generation is less likely to buy and own a house, to start a business, to get married, um, and it all has to do with the economics, right? It all has to do with the buying power of money, how much money they have in the first place. So the question is, do all mm-hmm. these stats, does all this information justify millennial behavior? Because some people see millennials as standoffish. Some people see that millennials don't want to get along or play along. But does it all start making sense? Because now we're getting bigger pieces of the puzzle. Well, yes and no. So now we have to look at the other side of the equation. So that's the, those are the justifications for the millennials, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now we have to look at the other side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, you have degree inflation as far as in price, but you also have degree inflation as far as in, in performance. And what I mean by that is there is a very big trend in corporate America right now. The reason why corporate America, this is what they, this is what they say, because I've talked to VPs and I've talked to different people in the capacity of what I do in my career. And what they will say is, they don't want to pay a millennial coming out of college $100,000. They're not going to get the performance mm. because the degree they may have, is, and, let's, and let's make sure we include one thing. A millennial coming out of school with just a four-year degree can't really start his or her career. You usually have to come out with a master's degree to even compete in this job market. Correct. Right? So if you're coming out with a master's degree, Two things. Now, the corporation is expecting you to be at a master level in terms of performance. But unfortunately, what they found for millennials, because they've been going to school for pretty much almost seven, eight years straight, mm. they haven't had no time to practice their skills in the real world. Oh. So, so there's no there's no high level. They're not re- they're masters in terms of theory, but they're not masters in terms of practice. Right, right, right. So now when you get into the real world and you say, okay, how come you're not going to start me off at 100000 You're only going to give me 50000 but I got a master's degree. The corporation is like, because you're not going to give me master-level performance. Mm. Right? And that's a sound argument. It's a very sound argument. You can't argue 
with performance. And when you look at the performance of millennials on the job, on the job, you'll find um, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of common reports about how a lot of millennials coming straight out of college, whether they have a master's of four year, they underperform. They underperform on the job. Mm. And and I wouldn't say it's all their fault. I would say this is the other factor we track at Academy M. So there's two other factors that happened in the 80s. So we talked about degree inflation. We talked about the rise in the Internet. But now we have to talk about something that we don't like to admit to in the United States. And now we have to talk about, we have to look at helicopter parenting, number one, and we'll define what that is in just one moment, but we have to look at helicopter parenting, and then we also have to look at uh, the self-esteem movement that rose during the 80s, Uh right? There was a movement called the self-esteem movement that rose during the 80s. During the 80s, this was a time where uh, there were a lot of different cultural things happening, and um, I'm sure you don't remember because you were a kid like me, but because I'm a student of history, I can tell you one of the big things that sparked helicopter pairing and even the self-esteem movement was this was the first time in the United States where it became an ep- epidemic kind of problem where you had kids were getting kidnapped and molested and, mm. and taken by these child molesters, and there were different things like this happening throughout all the, the country, right? And it's and then outside of that, too, you also had the rise that contributed to these self-esteem movements outside of that is you have the rise of women in the workplace. Mm. And women have already kind of dominated the education field from, you know, the 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 high school level to the elementary school level. But now they were starting to monopolize and go into the collegiate levels. Uh-huh. And the, the the area that they concentrated a lot of their energy and their focus was in psychology. So now if you look at even today, uh, over 70%, 67% of all psychologists, licensed or unlicensed, not just in the United States and the world, are women. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. and when women and when women came into this sphere, they started to look at some of the child development issues differently from men, mm. and so this would spark the self-esteem movement. This would spark the rise of the term helicopter parenting and the justifications that you even hear from helicopter parents today, as far as overprotecting the child and. Uh, building kind of like a, a, a safe space for the child development to happen. All these things were, all these things started in the eighties. So it was a trickle down effect. So from, from those, from those factors came, now you have an education system, like you're going through education in the eighties to the nineties, through the two thousands. It's been a progression to where now you can't fail a student in school anymore. Mm. And I'll give you an example. Like here in Texas, we have standardized testing like everywhere else in the United States. Okay? And I'm going to show you how this connects to to the, the corporate performance. Sure. So in Texas, you have something called a star test. Like my kids, you know, they're, they haven't got to high school level yet. But just it starts in elementary, right? And it starts in middle school. So if they don't pass their star test, they can't get promoted to the next grade. Now, notice I said they can't get promoted to the next grade, <laughs> right? They they will be moved. They will be placed to the next grade, but they won't be promoted. Mm. Now, some people will say, well, what's the difference? I can tell you right now, there isn't any difference, mm. right? They're going to be, so if my son, if my son uh, fails his third grade class, he's still going to fourth grade next year, even though he failed the start test. Mm. Because they're not allowed they're not allowed to have him repeat that grade anymore. They'll just say, okay, he's pretty much on the remedial side of of the fourth grade level, uh-huh. but he's going to be in the fourth grade next year, right? So just on that one thing, you basically set a very low bar because now you're saying there's no way we're going to fail you. 
and that's not in real life when you get into to work and corporations and everything else you will be fired if you don't perform yeah so you're not prepared for a real life situation yeah but that's just the tip of the iceberg so let's go mm-hmm. back to the education so they're not going to fail you now let's talk about the grading system mm-hmm. because this is which is more of an issue than them failing you after grade right so the grading system grades on a curve right so if a person, let's say, if my son gets at least uh, 40% right of everything on the STAR test, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna automatically pass the STAR test mm. just by getting everything right. And the reason why is because the curve for the STAR test, and I just found this out actually this year, it is 33%. So anybody who makes over 33%, they round off to like 70 or 80%. So a lot of parents get these these star test results, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, my child or my son, they're so smart, they're so whatever. You don't really know if they're that smart because they're just rounding the, 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 the numbers off. <laughs> okay. Right? Mm-hmm. I, w- I want you to pause real quick because I, w- I do want you to finish elaborating on this. But you didn't really define helicopter parenting. Can you just quickly go back into that and then finish this story? Yeah, definitely. Um, So helicopter parenting, in a nutshell, is when you focus on creating safe spaces for your child without letting them experience any sort of independence or failure on their own terms. Mm. And to give you an example of that, the, the, the best classic example of helicopter parenting that I see today is a kid who lives in a household and has zero responsibility and zero accountability for anything that they do, mm. right? And I'll give you a, per, a more clear example. Like, I had a friend who, uh, he, you know, him and his wife, they're beautiful people, beautiful parents, very loving, Okay. Um, and they have two kids and both, and every time their kids get in trouble at school, they get in trouble outside of school. Instead of being, uh, discerning, using discernment to find out, okay, what factors led to the trouble? Who's really responsible? They automatically blame the school or whoever else the kids say are at fault. No accountability. Automatic. Mm. With no no accountability. Mm. Now, when I go into my friend's home, right, my friends clean their, their kids' rooms. My friends uh, do all the chores in the house, or they, 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 they'll hire a maid service to do the chores. So the kids do no chores at all, right? And when they do get in trouble, there's no repercussion. So they'll say, okay, we're going to take away your phone. But the phone only gets taken away temporarily, maybe for a day, and then the kid will nag, and then he'll get the phone back. Right? So this is a version of helicopter parenting um, in the worst case, mm. in the worst case scenario, because the kid, the child is not, the child's literally protected from everything that can harm his or her experience. Anything that can stress them out is removed. So if they have a fight at school, I remember when I was growing up in the 80s, I had fights all the time at school. It was very commonplace in Detroit public schools for you to get into the disagreement with another child and for you to, to handle it physically, right? It was commonplace in elementary, at, you know, at the high school level. Um, not saying that we should always revert to violence, but what I'm saying is in real life, these things can occur, <laughs> right? This is the jungle, man. You got to get ready for the jungle and hierarchy. Yeah, it's, these things can occur. But now, if if my son was to get into a fight physically with another child, not only is he can be facing expulsion, not being expelled, he's facing expulsion mm. from the school, mm. right? And on top of that, I, uh, his parents, the kid, whoever he fought, you know, they 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 open they can open up a lawsuit against me mm. and my wife. Wow. These are the kind of things that happen now. Wow, wow, wow. Right? And my son could be forced to take anger management at, like, eight. (laughs) 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 Because of one fight. (laughs) Because of one fight. 
right? That probably didn't last longer than a minute. You know, probably didn't last longer than 10 seconds. But the whole fact that something, you know, aggressive happens, it's like, oh, no, that, that can't take place. And it doesn't have to be anything physical. It could be something where it's 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 mental. Like, uh, one of the big things we see now is cyberbullying, cyberbullying movement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a that's a symptom of helicopter parenting, mm. right? So, if I'm getting toned on Facebook, or my son or my daughter's getting toned on Facebook, there's no difference than you going to work and your your supervisor telling you, okay, you're not measuring up to what we we think you should be doing, right? Because your first your first introduction in, in how to work with other people in a combative environment starts in high school. It starts with your peers, right? It starts at school. So if you remove those stressors, when you get into a real stressor situation where you got a hot deadline and your supervisor is breathing down your neck, they're not going to talk nice to you. They're not going to praise you for the little things you do. They're looking at performance. Do you have this report done? This report looks like crap. This report looks like this, et cetera, et cetera. You can't talk this way. I can't even use the word crap in a corporate environment with a millennial mm. because that's an EEO issue. That's a lawsuit now because <laughs> it's considered threatening speech, mm. right? And these are the other issues about performance. And I'm not saying you should be able to berate a person and, and humiliate a person. But what I'm saying, you should be able to talk in a very firm, uh, uh, commanding manner if you need to be able to get a point across in a work environment. Because this is the way it was when our parents went to work. They they dealt with these kind of things, right? But now, because the child is insulated from all stressors, from high school, from uh, elementary school to at home, there's no repercussions, there's no consequences, now... Once they get, by the time they get, make it to the corporate world, because even in college, it's the same thing. You know, they grade on the curve in college, too. Mm. We don't have time to talk about that, but they grade on the curve in college. Mm. So you can have somebody who came out and had a 3.0, but it wasn't a real 3.0. More like a 2.7. Yeah, more like a 2.7. They're just rounding off because the the schools have no vested interest in failing uh, somebody at the collegiate level because now they're not getting the federal money anymore if they fill that student. Mm. Right? There's too much money involved now. So now they have to keep, they have to, those graduation rates, they have to keep high because just off of the shock of college, they're losing 50% because the average graduation rate for a college is around uh, 54% for uh, regular universities. So that means they're only graduating 54% on a six-year on a six-year turnaround. Those rates go down to the 40s and the 30s when you get to the four-year turnaround. So it seems like there's right? yeah, it seems like there's helicopter parenting in the home. It seems like there's helicopter teaching in the, in the schools and the universities. So then what what positives are we left with? Because um, one thing that I realized right about right away about millennials is we have a dichotomy, right? So on one side we do have yeah. these stereotypes that are true, but on the other hand we do have millennials out there doing great things. Especially you, you're a futurist. You work in the uh, in the tech industry, so you have millennials doing amazing things with tech, with VR, automation, all these different things, uh, amazing startups that they're creating. So, but balance it out for me. Well, I, I think. Like I said, there's, there's we talk about different sides of the equation, different factors, right? So I, I think the the path to success for the millennial, and this is part of the reason why I got involved with my other co-founders to found Academy Elm, it starts with having, you know, mentorship tracks. Like I was privileged because I grew up in an environment on the tail end of the millennial spectrum, mm. right? Meaning that by the time I was 18, we still had dial-up internet. <laughs> right? right, right, right. So it wasn't it wasn't a full regular thing. And my and because of my my background, um, 
socially for his family or whatever like that. My family didn't believe in helicopter parenting at all. Mm. Like they believed in, in consequences and accountability. So like I had my first job um, uh, off the books when I was 11, working at the corner store, sweeping up the store for uh, for money for video games and candy. Mm. Right. I had my first job on the books paying taxes at 13 in Michigan. Mm. Because that was the legal age, you could get a permit. If your parents sign off, you can get a permit, and you can go to work. And I had my first job. I was working ten hours a week at thirteen, every week, mm. and I was paying taxes, and I had a bank account, right? So for me, I was on a different track than a lot of other millennials are today. But not to say that you have to be on my track to be successful. It doesn't have to be that detailed. But I think there are some millennials that once they get incentivized and the veil kind of lifts from their eyes that the world is not a safe space mm. and it's never going to be a safe space. Uh, it's never going to be exactly how you want it to be. You're going to have to make it, if you want it to be a certain kind of way, you're going to have to turn it into that, right? And I think that's what is incentivizing a lot of millennials, like in the tech space and the startup space, and education. That's why they're so passionate about changing things because they see a lot of things they don't agree with and they want to be able to make an impact to be able to have some autonomy because they've never had any real autonomy. If you grew up with helicopter parented parents, when, when did you really get a chance to test your metal? Mm. Yeah, you don't, you don't. When did you, get, you don't. Yeah, you don't get a chance yeah. to test it once by the time you get to college. Now you, you're back in another helicopter environment <laughs> right <clears throat> so and if you come out of college the only chance to test it is really going into corporate america but you can't really test it in because you're starting off at the bottom you're starting off it's like you're in a big pond and you're a guppy so you're starting off as a guppy but you want to be a shark <laughs> <laughs> right and you feel like you should be a shark because you've invested all this time to do everything right that everybody told you to do so you went to school you got the grades you did everything that they told you to do, and you feel like you should be a shark, but you're coming in and being paid and treated like a guppy. Mm. And you're performing like a that guppy. Is, and you're performing like a guppy, but you don't know it because your whole life you was told you were a shark. <laughs> but really, you were a guppy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, not to say that everybody, you know, underperforms, because you do have extraordinary people in the millennial generation who are just, they're just unique on following themselves. Mm. And I've met, I've been honored to meet people who are just, they're extraordinary in their own right. And then you have people who they're above the fray. They're not extraordinary, but they're not underperformers. They're underachievers. Like, you know, me and your relationship or whatever, we're close. We're similar in age. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I would count you among those millennials where, you know, you have a lot of fluent intelligence. You, you, you know, you understand how the world works. And you're willing to look at the long term uh, and the decisions that you make. And you operate a little bit differently than probably some of the other millennials that may even be in the same age bracket. Mm. So you do find some millennials that just, they go a different way. And usually when you see that, it's because if you go into their background, there's some sort of mentorship. There's some kind of events happening that denote responsibility, accountability, and ownership of your experiences, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you see mm -hmm. down the line. And so I think that's what you see with a lot of millennials who are becoming successful, um, people who are creating all these extraordinary apps and all this other stuff. They're being, you know, they're going into this stuff because they want to be able to test their metal, man. They want to be able to claim their rights to passage that they feel like they were denied by going into, you know, the, the different lanes that their parents told them to go into. You brought up you brought up fluid intelligence. Uh, I, I obviously, I've gone through the Academy M program. I, I, I work or I'm a volunteer within Academy M. Can you talk about what fluid intelligence is and how it relates to what you've just been saying? Yeah, fluid intelligence, um, great question. Fluid intelligence was first, um, it's one of the, it's, it's the, to put the, in context, there's two, there's two intelligence, uh, sets that were developed by, um, Raymond Cattell, uh, psychologist from the 
early 60s. And Raymond Cattell is somebody everybody should know because he's actually came up with majority of the, the, the marketing research we use today that's based off of personality traits and behavior types, right? He created all that research. But at the forefront of his research that's kind of been lost to time was these concepts of fluid intelligence versus crystallized intelligence. Mm. So fluid intelligence is what we what we would we know or what we would used to call or know as common sense, right? So we means if if I send you to the store and you're coming you live in my neighborhood, right? Or you don't live in my neighborhood. You just came here to Houston, you're visiting me, right? And I tell you, hey, go to the store, can you go to the store and, and pick up some milk uh, for this stuff that we're preparing for this meal. And I don't let you take your phone, so you can't use your GPS, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't drive there because, you know, I tell you, look, the store's around the corner, you can just walk, right? But I don't tell you which direction the store is. So now you have to figure out how do you get, where is the store? You got to locate it. Now, People who grew up in the era that I grew up in, in the era before that, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Because back in the day, you didn't have apps and you didn't have GPS. Hmm. So when you moved into a new area or when you went to go visit somebody, the first I remember calling people on the rotary phone asking them, hey, how do you get, how can I get to your home? So what are the directions? <laughs> what are the cross streets? What are the markers? Right? Because... There was no GPS. There was no MapQuest. There was none of this stuff existed at the time I started learning how to drive and move around and go to different places. None of this stuff existed. You had to actually, either somebody would tell you or you had to figure it out. And when you figure these things out on your own, uh, some people will say, okay, well, you got a good sense of direction. You got good survival skills or you got good common sense. But what, Really what they were saying unknowingly was you have good fluent intelligence. So fluent intelligence is the abstract ability to be able to recognize patterns and think in a logical manner and deduce through problem solving which your next step should be mm. when you're confronted with a problem, right? That's fluent intelligence. And this is without, and this is without having any pretext. Okay. Because, like I, in the example I gave you, there was no pretext, so you didn't you didn't know what you you've never been to where I was at because you're visiting, right? So you're out of town, so you're not used to the terrain, right? Mm-hmm. You're not used to how things function in my city. You're not used to how things function in my neighborhood. So if I strip you on your phone and I tell you to go walk to the store and I don't tell you which direction you go, you are really using nothing but fluent intelligence and common sense to figure it out. Mm. So that's fluent intelligence. On the flip side of that, you have crystallized intelligence, and that's what m- most people and millennials, that's what we oversell here in America, right? And that's what leads to a lot of underperformance even in corporate America is because everybody's expecting everything to be taught and handed down to them. So when I use my GPS, like, for instance, I get on my wife because every time she goes anywhere that she's never been before, um, she automatically just floods it into the GPS and the GPS tells her where to go. Mm. I'm like, that GPS can drive you off the cliff and you won't know until you get to the end of the cliff. <laughs> there was just an article, there was an article on Google, I think a day or two ago, saying that, uh, yeah. did you see that? It, 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 it led this map or whatever it was on the, on the smartphone, led people to an empty field. It was supposed to be a detour, but they all wound up like in an empty field. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's a perfect example, right? Because, Technology is man-made, so it can fail. It's not perfect, mm. right? And that's, you know, it's, it's going to work majority of the time, but it's gonna, it's just where it just doesn't work. And one thing I try to tell my wife is, because, you know, I'm from that uh, old-school thought, when I get in the car and I need to go somewhere I've never been before, I won't use the GPS to tell me where to go first. I'm going to look on the map, because that's one thing that I can say that's good about technology now is back when I first started learning how to drive, we used to keep a map in the glove compartment. Of course. Yep. Right? Now you don't need to keep a map in the glove compartment because you can pull up a map of pretty much all the United States and all the highways and all the neighborhoods on your phone. Right. Right? So what I try to tell her to get her to use her fluent intelligence more, she look on the map 
and try to figure out your own route on how to get there. Mm. Mm. Right? Just taking that small step, it improves your overall intelligence because you're problem-solving more. But see, the problem, this is the catch-22 of the generation we're going into now with all this tech and with the AI and everything else coming out, the intuitive apps, is at one at what at what point do you start doing critical thinking? Mm. So if if the GPS is going to tell you how to get to work, when to get to work, what 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 lanes to avoid, what uh, highways to avoid, because it's traffic, they're doing all that thinking for you. And then when you get to your job, you're dealing with technology that's telling you, okay, you got this project, you got that project. You should spend this much time because you can automate all these things. There's apps for automating all everything in your life, basically, right? And I see it now to where people are suffering from lack of critical thinking skills. And this is not just millennials. I've, I've seen it even in baby boomers, right? Because they have grown so accustomed to depending on these applications. So to go back to your original question, though, um, as far as millennials being successful and how we should look at them and everything else is it's a balance. The, in everything in life, you have to find a healthy balance, right? So I don't think it's 100% you need to throw millennials into the fire to make them stronger. I, I think it's a balance that you have to give them room to experience hardship on their own terms. And you have to give them room to develop on their own terms without your involvement, right? Because that's the only way somebody can really mature and develop is when they go through things on their own terms and there's no safeguards. Like, you can't learn. I've never met anybody who learned how to ride a bike with never taking the trailing wheels off. Mm. And that's the problem. Everybody wants to keep the training wheels on. Just but the, the, the sooner mm. you take the training wheels off, the faster you learn how to ride a bike. Mm. I mean, the real world doesn't have training wheels, so we got to get them used to however the real world is. Exactly. And you got to do it sooner than later. So if you look at the phenomenon, you got, you know, because I hear a lot of uncles and granddads, they complain about their parents, you know, their kids living at home and they're in their 30s. Okay, well, you help create that. Mm. <laughs> you help create that phenomenon, right? Because even if, You're not a helicopter parent. Your generation created the helicopter parenting. They created the debt inflation. They created the degree inflation, right? They're the ones, I mean, how many millennials you know that are, are, are Fortune 500 CEOs? Not many at all. <laughs> not many. Exactly. Exactly. So who is, who's really setting the, the salaries? It's the older generation. It's not my, it's, not, it's, not, it's the older generation. Yeah. Right? Um, majority of people that are teaching their professors of note, they're not millennials at these colleges. Probably baby right? boomers, yeah. Baby boomers or older they're, Gen X. They're baby boomers. Yeah. They're older Gen X, right? And that's the departure you see, right? So you gotta, you gotta, sometimes you gotta take a hard look in the mirror and see what you're contributing to the problem and not just looking at, okay, the, the, the people who are perpetuating the problem. Because that's how millennials get a bad rap. They'd be like, okay, well, these millennials, they're lazy, they're entitled. Yeah. Okay, they may be all those things and then some, but what were the conditions that created them? And did you contribute to those conditions? And if you can't be honest with yourself and say you contributed to the conditions, and contributing can simply mean that um, you may not play a large part in it, but you didn't do anything to stop the conditions that were being developed. And that's something I find a lot with parents um, who are not technically helicopter parents, but they didn't fight against the helicopter environment that they were sending their children into, right? They didn't create any kind of other vehicles for their children to be better developed. They just said, okay, I'm going to them in school. They got good grades. It's good. That's it. Right? It's like, you know, Colossus is done. And that's, And, and, and that's how, and, and in, their own, in their defense, right, in their defense, 
they didn't know any better. Right. Yeah. They're exactly. trusting the educational system, right? To do what it's supposed to do for their children, right? Because it, not, every, not every parent is going to be working with the same data sets. And not every parent is going to be a fluid or, or critical thinker. Mm. You know, some people are just blue-collar workers. And, like, my stepfather, um, he worked at uh, Chrysler his whole life. Mm. And the dude was pretty much a mute majority of the time I knew him. Mm. <laughs> mm. So, but he worked in, that, in those days, and, and when he was working, there were no weekends off. Like, when, I didn't even know what a weekend off was until I moved here to Texas, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, because I grew up, because if you grew up in Detroit, Michigan during the 80s and the 70s, or even the early 90s, if, you know, if, you know you, you're close to proximity, you've been through Michigan, it's a blue, it was a blue-collar right. uh, city. Right. It was a blue-collar environment. You have people who are white-collar, but majority of the people who made that ecosystem run was blue-collar. Right, and blue collar parents, they're they're gonna they're working harder, so they're stressed out more. They they're they're gonna miss a lot of details. So those kind of parents, I'm not gonna say I totally give them a pass, but I, I can say I can understand their experience and why they could be upset and seeing their children not perform at a certain level and not understanding what happened because they thought they did everything right. So, you know, but the other parents, you know, they who knew, man, there's no excuses for you. <laughs> so now bring it all home because we, we, we've pointed out some positives, but now we've pointed out quite a few negatives about this. The current system, the lack of experience, the lack of direction, the lack of mentorship for millennials, thus all being reasons for them failing. Uh, what does Academy M offer millennials and those who work with millennials? What do you guys do? Awesome question. So what Academy M does, we like to look at ourselves as a purpose academy. Our mission is to help millennials find their true uh, purpose in life and career, right? So in order to help somebody find their purpose, you first have to break down their experience. So the first thing we do is we do what's called data-driven mentorship, okay? So the first thing we do is we give them an evaluation that's called the Millennial Curve Evaluation. And the, the curve evaluation is what we kind of refer to as an experience uh, evaluation because it tracks how you've experienced some of these uh, mac macro factors that mm -hmm. we talked about uh, in this podcast today. So we're going to learn what was, your what was your relationship like with technology? What is your relationship like with social media? How do you understand the world culturally, politically? Um, were you exposed to helicopter parenting? These are some kind of things that we'll learn by you taking the survey. So from that survey and that evaluation, then we can build a mentorship track to begin to learn, okay, what experiences do you need to further develop in order for you to discover your purpose? Because somebody can't hand you your purpose in life, mm. Right. You have to discover that. So what Academy M does, we create the necessary experiences through mentorship, right? So we have, we, we create mentors. So we train mentors on how to simulate the right environments for young millennials um, to develop. And we also work on programs that we call reverse mentoring programs, where because we don't really look at being a millennial just as an age range or as an age construct. Um, I know that's the typical view, but let's be honest, mm -hmm. right? I've met people who are in their 40s or in their 50s who have some millennial traits. I know people who are in their 40s and 50s. They're on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram more than my 14-year-old daughter. <laughs> right? <laughs> and they use it better. Right. And they use it better, right? Um, so, and we all we all see how, you know, Twitter has pretty much taken over the political world, right? So you see some of these old politicians, they're, they're tweeting like little high schoolers, right? So who's to say that um, some of the, the devices that uh, 
devices that are affecting the millennial generation are not also affecting the other generations as well, like the baby boomers and the generation Xers. Right. So we so what we do is we create reverse mentoring programs that give millennials, remember, they get a chance to test their metal. They get a chance to contribute because that's what they've been robbed of. Other chapter parenting just doesn't rob children of life skills and life skill development. It also robs them of their opportunities to contribute in marginal ways to society, right? And with reverse mentoring, they get an option to contribute. So idea example of reverse mentoring, we may place somebody who's, like, let's say they're in their 20s, they just got into corporate America. We'll place them with somebody who maybe in ready to retire out outside of corporate America. Right. Right? Or they're in a deep leadership position at corporate America, and they just don't understand the modern world of tech. They don't understand some of the things that the millennials know very well. Because millennials know three things very well, right? They understand political correctness very well. They understand technology very well. And they understand health uh, very, very well, mm. right? So those three things they they they've taken a latch on to because these are the three things that the baby boomers and the generation Xers left on the table for them that they weren't controlling. That's not one hundred percent monopolized, right? So if you know how to be politically correct. It's good to have like a millennial board in your company or a millennial board in your in your school, mm. right? Because millennials can tell you, okay, well, that's not going to fly in this new generation. These are your vulnerabilities because we don't we don't understand the what you're seeing the way you're communicating. We are interpreting right. what you're seeing totally differently, <laughs> right? Mm. So they can be great public relations assets. Um, in those kind of spheres. And on the tech side, like you mentioned, they're driving a lot of innovation. There's a lot of creativity out there, man. Mm. There's a ton of creativity. And they just need the space to to to, to, to be activated, mm. right? But when they activate, they're coming so far above where the baby boomers are. Sometimes the baby boomers get lost. And... They, they they don't even understand what any of the millennials are doing, right? Like, you know, like if I go to my father and I try to explain Internet of Things or IoT or the right, cloud right. or IOE, he's going to look at me like just shaking his head. What, what does that mean? <laughs> what are you talking about, right? You know, he doesn't need to know that his GPS is connected to his Google Calendar and the calendar is connected to his Google Assistant and the Google Assistant is connected to his alarm clock. He doesn't need to know how that works. He's not even interested. He just wants it to work. Does it work? And when it doesn't work, he doesn't understand why it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, a millennial will understand those those nuances, right? And a millennial can come in and mentor like you, like I do. I can go in, I can mentor my father and say, look, okay, well, this is why you're not getting your alerts right because you, you didn't set this right or when you, you changed this, it affected that. There's a relationship between that. Mm. And he just he gets stressed out. He's like, "Oh, this is just too much. Why can't I just have an old alarm clock like I used to?" <laughs> right? <laughs> you know. So I, um, that's what Academy M does. We create these kind of programs to facilitate the development of people um, at the millennial level and at the non-millennial level because it's an ecosystem where both people have to coexist. And in the next ten or fifteen years, the millennial perspective is going to be the only perspective because eventually the baby boomers are going to be totally, they're going to be like the traditionalists, right? Mm. So, you know, if you've met anybody from the greatest generation ever, they're in their 90s now. They're not working. They're yeah. not leaving no companies. Right. Right? They're totally out of the equation. They're just trying to hold on to whatever little life they have left peacefully. Mm. Right? They still can be assets, you know, because those who haven't lost any cognitive functions can, they have experience, and experience is, is always an asset. But for the most part, majority of the world decisions are being made by the by their children, the right. baby boomers, right. and the, and then the baby boomers' children, and Generation Xers, and all these other folks, right? So that's what's going to happen in 10, 15 years. The millennials are going to be in control of everything, and 
we're going to be setting the tone on this, that, the other. So if we want the world to be a better place overall, we have to not sacrifice our, our resources. Because the greatest resource that we have that's contributed to civilization is uh, the recording of experiences and the learning therefrom, right? And you can't record experiences if you're denying somebody's experience is valid. Hmm. And that's on both sides of the table. So if you're, a, if, you, if we have some babies listening to this podcast, I would say you, you can't deny a millennial's experience because if you do that, you're shutting off a great resource of learning. And it's the same thing with millennial. If hmm. you deny your parents or your uncles, if they're trying to share with you some knowledge, right? And you're just shutting it off. Oh, that's just the old way of doing it. You don't get the new way. Well, guess what? The old way is the, the old way of doing it is the foundation we created the new way. Mm. And if you want to be at a master level, okay, you think Michael Jordan learned to 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 get to six and zero, and LeBron James uh, learned to get to the top of the NBA game, and, and Tiger Woods learned to get to the top of the golf game without mastering the fundamentals and those who came before him. I was watching, the, and I'll, I'll say this in my close the time. Sure. I was watching an old video of Mike Tyson, right? And in the video, Mike Tyson in the interview, and they were interviewing some of his trainers. And they were trying to decide, okay, who were the greatest influences in Tyson's life outside of uh, Gus D'Amato, right? Mm. And Mike Tyson said out his mouth, um, outside of the things that Gus D'Amato taught him, he studied... The, the three boxes he studied the most were um, Floyd Patterson and Jack Dempsey mm. and Muhammad Ali, right? And he said the reason why he studied them the most is because these guys were entertaining, they were exciting, but he said they literally had the best styles that he thought he could emulate. So when you look at Mike Tyson's career early on, even after, right, he became the youngest heavyweight in, in boxing history because at 13, he was looking at Jack Dempsey. When Jack Dempsey was boxing, we barely had video capabilities to record film. We only have, like, I think three or four films of Jack Dempsey boxing. They're all black and white with no sound. Mm. So he was studying people that literally was, had been dead or gone or forgotten 40, 20, 50, 60 years before him. And that's what led to him being great in his era. So he took what they had and he built his own path on top of it. And I, I would say that is the key to what we try to do at Academy. We try to give people that kind of opportunity, learn from the past to be able to create better future. But don't just outright shut off the past to say that, okay, we can create the future without even knowing the past because it's never been done like that. And even the human brain itself, um, which currently weighs, I think it's, the human brain weighs like three pounds or something like that. But if you believe in anything evolution-based as far as science, um, they, they, they discovered that the human brain used to weigh like only a pound. Hmm. But what changed it was when we started learning how to farm and we learned how to migrate. So when we started traveling across the world more and we started having more experiences and we started eating better, it actually helped our brains grow bigger. That's where we got better critical thinking skills and all that other stuff. Now, even if you don't believe in evolution, which you can, which you can even test in your own environment today at home, Go put yourself in an uncomfortable position and, and do a task that you've never done before and complete that task. And I guarantee you, after after going through the hardship of completing that task, you will feel more intelligent. You will feel more achieved. You know, you will feel more, you know, more alive as a human being. And that's what we create at Academy on. And that's what we look to pass on to the next generation, those kind of environments, those kind of experiences. So where can we find out more about Academy M if we want to enroll in one of the programs, we want to read a little bit about what you guys do, 
Where can we find it? Uh, great question. So you can go to www.academym.org, and you can read about our our, pro, our different programs, and you can sign up uh, to be a mentor or learn more about what we're doing. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Q. Thanks for coming, man. Hopefully, we can have you back on. We have to definitely uh, comment on a next on a next episode. One thing that you said about LeBron James being the best, but we're not going to go into that right now. So <laughs> we'll save that. We'll save that for uh, visit number two. <laughs> Got to leave him with a little little you know cliffhanger. So um, while away, listeners, Q and uh, the the rest of the team at Academy M are doing great things. I am a part of the Academy M team, so I can testify to that. Q is doing some really amazing things at Leap72, so check him out over there as well. Please like and subscribe this episode if you benefited from it, and see you guys next time.